Hello, this is the Plant Book Club. Hello everyone and welcome to the Plant Book Club where we gather together to talk about our favourite books that are about plants or something related to the plant theme. So today we are talking about a book that I chose. It's called Lessons from Plants by Baronda L. Montgomery. But before we get into talking about the book, we're going to all give a bit of an introduction to who we are. So I might go first. I'm Tegan. I am a plant scientists by training um, now work in more climate science and I host Plants and Pipettes which is a podcast and a blog and we talk about molecular plant biology um, and that's me and Yoram so Yoram maybe you can introduce yourself next Hi, um, yeah I'm Yoram, uh, second part of Plants and Pipettes, um, science communicator, plant scientist and now occasionally book nerd which is new for me and next up we have Ellen Hello, my name is Ellen Earhart, and I run the Plant Crimes podcast. I'm a journalist and fact checker, and uh, yeah, you can catch me on various websites writing things. We're also joined today by Judith and Melissa. Judith. Yes, hello, I'm Judith, joining from Sweden. I'm a molecular plant biologist and uh, both researcher and um, founder of Flora L Design, together with Melissa. Hi, I'm Melissa, and I, as you just said, I work with Judith and Flora L Design. I'm coming to you today from Canada, and I work at a university in a teaching capacity um, for lab teaching now. So that's it. We've got five of us here today from all different parts of the globe, and we've all read the book this time, yeah? We've all sat down and read. So again, it's Lessons from Plants by Baronda Montgomery. So does somebody want to start to sort of describe what the book is about in broad terms the book is pretty much what it's on the title it's lessons from plants it's talking about different things that plants do and then drawing sort of analogies is that the right word to like human life like how we could as a society or individuals learn from plants and take what plants do as inspiration for our own doing uh and it's structured in a number of chapters i actually forgot how many like in the range of like seven or eight or something uh, six is Tegan is what Tegan show me <laughs> with an intro and a conclusion yeah um, and each chapter is like on a topic on a topic and then ends on the lesson that we can learn from it so it's pretty much like plant science and then in the end what can we learn from the plant science for us humans and then a big um, conclusion chapter in the end that sort of summarizes everything and brings it together the conclusion is called groundskeeping, so that sort of gives you an idea. It steps back a little bit and, and looks at how to maintain your garden almost. <laughs> Does anybody else have any comments on sort of broad feelings they got from the book? Um, I looked at it as kind of like a biology 101 textbook with like moralisms thrown in. I think that's a good, that's a good thing. Just Yeah, that's a good way to look at it. I agree. <laughs> yeah. Yes. I, I agree with you. I was thinking while I was reading the book, I kept wondering who who this book would be for because it's very, it almost seems kind of very specific in its audience while also being like very broad, I guess, in a way, because it's it's very scientific, but it doesn't go deep into the science and it's really well referenced. So you could go further into the science if you wanted or if you needed to, but I did one thing I really 
appreciated about the book was that it is scientifically accurate and yeah. <laughs> easy easy to understand. So I think that there is a target audience that, um, like Ellen said, like a bio textbook, almost like an easier to read bio textbook without so many diagrams, I guess, in it. It's like a perfect way to describe the book for me. But do you think it is easy to understand? Like I, to be honest, there were times where I was struggling to follow along because it's, I mean, I'm used to this like scientific language, but um, like I have, I, I went back through the book and very often I wrote down like jargon or this reads like a scientific paper. Um, this could be a review. Um, and that all told me that it's like not that accessible. Like, how do you think about that? I thought it was, uh, it had all the scientific words and that uh, made me wonder the same as Melissa said, who actually should read this book. But also most of the scientific uh, terms were explained in a half sentence afterwards of what they meant, but very shortly as well. So, but there is a lot of jargon in the book, yet I don't feel it's standalone jargon. There is some kind of an explanation to it. But if you would read this book as a non-educated person about plant biology, there would be lots of words that occur at single occasions and maybe come back two pages later and that you need to remember. So I think for, a, for somebody who has never really studied plant biology, that would be difficult. But I could imagine I found myself... <laughs> Like maybe I'm part of the target audience of such a book because I didn't study um, botany. I came into one field of molecular plant biology where I've been digging in. And by the time now I have learned much more, but maybe a younger student uh, who wouldn't be so familiar with the entire field. It's a good overview about all that there is in plant biology and the different ways that plant interacts with each other even though I also found it quite redundant at certain places or many different places. Yeah, I think for, for me, one of the problems is I, I feel like we might be the target audience, but we kind of know too much, which means a lot of what we read, we've, we've already read. And for like us in our studies, but also in the other books we've read. So there was like, you know, a big chunk of Robin Wall Kimmerer in there, which we've, we've talked about her book, Braiding Sweetgrass previously. So I think that was like a little bit... I don't know if I'm the target audience. To me, the target audience then would have to be somebody who is interested in biology and maybe was already studying biology, but not plant biology. And this is to bring them from more human-focused things into plants and say, hey, like, look, this is how plants are doing things. And you can also, like, you know, learn the lessons from plants. So that was sort of what I landed on as being the right person to be reading this book. Hmm. So I kept thinking I would recommend it to a graduate student before they like defend their thesis or like apply into grad studies when they need like a broad overview of plant biology um, if they didn't know that already. So kind of an upper level student for sure focusing on that is what I thought. What did you all think about like the lessons? <laughs> <laughs> like, can we talk about some of them? Like, um, we, we can go I think through them. Uh, many of them I found were just budgeting. It was like you have finite resources or energy and therefore you have to make decisions where you put that energy to, to work. Um, and that was literally on the first chapter, the conclusion, and I think I noted it down like chapter three, it was the same conclusion again <laughs> um, in different words. 
but this and then it came back like a couple of times again like I, at one point i i had a note in here um on like page 112 so like i think the second to last chapter i was just like again budgeting because then again it starts like it is essential for plants to make decisions based on environmental surveillance since like all organisms they have a finite amount of energy so this topic comes up often well, I, I think you're, yeah, I mean, there was a lot of budgeting, but there's there's a slightly different shifts in the theme. So the first one was a, about a changing environment. So that's the idea that the environment can be like changing a lot and you have to prepare for different things. The second one is friend or foe, which I can't remember. Who remembers what the lesson from that one was? I think it's about collaboration. Like sometimes they work together to achieve um, a certain end and sometimes it was competition. Collaboration is good, y'all. Well, this one was about like collaborating not only with um, people close by, but also making larger um, like networks. So there's, there was some kind of discussion about doing interdisciplinary work and how as a scientist, you can benefit from not only interacting with, you know, other biologists, if you're a biologist, but like also with people in broader fields. And I thought that was like at least a good point. And that was also one of the first places, this is like 50 pages in the second chapter, she brought in this idea of marginalized and first generation um, students being shut out from local networks. So this this idea that there's these networks that are already set up between friends um, and that if you're shut out, you can suffer. And this was, again, linked to the plants, you know, helping each other. And this was kind of the first hint that these lessons might have this like more interesting political spin. And I personally, like, I wanted a little bit more of that. I want a little bit more like fire and burn things down. Um, that just might be where I'm at in my life right now. But there was like some hints of this that came out um, in the chapters. And that was kind of the first bit that I, I saw of that. That was kind of, yeah, interesting, a little bit of a sneak peek and I wanted more. And that was much more also in the, I mean, in the conclusions, she went into that more and she had some chapters where it's like about like kin is supporting kin. And uh, the question was, how can we increase our network and include more diversity? So uh, in one, one type of diversity would be interdisciplinary research, but also more like I think she was turning somewhat against racism and more inclusion and a more inclusive uh, society. And some of them was, was, it, was applied to faculty and to being in research. And I could see there a, a connection, but others was really very general about how we act as a society. And I think given that uh, she is a professor in the US, if I'm right, um, there is also different kinds of problems, I think, that are more um, that are more severe or more prominent than we know them maybe in different areas of Europe. So uh, I think that that also came across. But some of that had also been published as two papers, which she's saying in the acknowledgement. There were uh, chapter five, the one where she talks about the three sisters and integrative faculty development that has been published in 2017 as a paper. And then she had another one from deficits to possibilities in uh, the public philosophy journal that was in 2018. So uh, that kind of like gave me also the idea that these lessons that she draws, they have also been somehow um, written into scientific papers. So addressing the scientific community with that and wanting to to broaden the the thinking there. Yeah, honestly, I thought like I thought the 
moralisms were a little trite. Like, I don't think we should try to, you know, integrate people who are under-resourced because plants are live in diverse communities. Like, I think we should try to do that because it's morally right, you know? Like, like I didn't, like, it felt a little icky to me. I, I didn't love it. Yeah. I found there were a couple of things where I found the, like, the analogy, the stretch from coming to plants to humans made me feel weird. Like, there's some things that are a bit funny where she talks about, like, how plants can regrow organs, and that's, like, a strength of them. And then a couple of paragraphs later, she's like, yeah, that we can learn from plants. I'm like, yeah, okay, I'm going to learn how to regrow my limbs if I lose them. <laughs> um, but then there's also, like, other things. Like, she's talking a lot about, like, mentorship and how it's like being a gardener, taking care of your plants. But when you are a gardener, quite literally, you're killing a lot of plants that you're weeding out, like not only like non-desired plants, but even if you grow tomatoes, you you grow from seedling like 30 different plants and then you put five of them in your garden that look the nicest. And like this analogy just didn't work for me. Like I found it like she tried to make this as this like positive, caring, nurturing aspect. But I could only think of like, yeah, okay, if you only look like the, a part of gardening then yeah, that works. But if you look at many, like the entirety of gardening, it fell apart. And it, that I felt that very often. I found like, like the points that she's making, they're right and good. But I would not learn that from plants. I would learn that from so many other places. But I feel like we've hit that um, previously, like with the, the book we read before this one. Um, what is it? The Hidden Life of Trees. There's this, this desire to, to show good lessons and show the good things. We had all of these arguments about how trees cooperate and they love each other and they help each other. And as you said, you're I'm like, that's just really not how nature works. And she does talk about competition in there as well. But there is this tendency to be like, look at this good thing. Let's do the good thing. And we've seen this quite consistently with our popular plant science books, I would say. Um, mm -hmm. Yeah, that's a really good point. Yeah, and I think that common theme of like trying to unlock the mysteries of what plants hold and, and look at it in a human perspective, we've read several books that kind of are on that theme already. So I think that kind of added to this book feeling not so fresh in ideas when we were reading it. But I did, I, I kind of liked the idea of drawing lessons from plants. But what I really found with the, um, like the morals that she was kind of talking about, I felt like it, or I was really wanting more of a personal touch. And I felt like her learnings would have been a lot stronger if it, instead of being a surface level discussion, like humans can also cooperate like plants can, if she actually told some stories about her own experiences or how she sees this manifested in her life and really like really more personal stories that's kind of what I was wanting to connect with and, and couldn't find in this book yeah like Michael Pollan saying that he felt uncomfortable giving his neighbors the GMO potatoes <laughs> and he thought all tulips look like penises <laughs> I'll <say> that. <laughs> I mean, this is the thing. So we like she has written some um, shorter sort of um, opinion pieces and there's stuff on her website. There's also stuff that has been published. Like um, I think there was even a, a piece in Nature. And these these opinions seem stronger to me than this book. And this felt a bit like watered down as far as this is what I'm saying. I could feel some bits. You know, she mentions you know marginalization of first people from first generation backgrounds or other marginalized backgrounds. I want the next step. I want there to be like follow through on this and, and more of a punch. And that was a little bit missing throughout this. But I, 
I feel like she can do this. So I was wondering if there was some editing that made it softer, um, maybe more. I, I, don't, I don't know. About the editing, I was, uh, I was surprised by how the references were structured. This confused me. Uh, instead of having the references structured throughout the book from one to whatever, 150, they were coming back in the chapters and got new numbers. And some of them were cited numerous, numerous times with different numbers. So I was wondering if there was some editing in there, because that's not the way that references are handled in science. Uh, so I found it a little bit confusing. It's like, is that the same paper that she cites before? Or like, um, yeah. Um, but I... That, that sort of gives a clue to me that the idea of the book is that it shouldn't be read as a novel. It should be picked up and read sort of as one chapter and then put down and then later picked up and read as another chapter. And that kind of comes through in the writing. We mentioned before there's a bit of redundancy, but she does sort of repeat oh as I already mentioned in chapter three let's talk about roots again and reading it all in one sitting you did feel no I just read chapter three like stop talking about the roots I heard the roots now but I think if you're sort of thinking of it as something to pick up read a bit learn a bit put it down and come back another day it makes a little bit more sense to me yeah that's maybe that's maybe the reason yeah but if it would be like a collection of short stories i would have liked to have more storytelling in there like if i like i've read other books there were collections of essays or col collections of like newspaper like um co from columnists like these work because you like each thing has like also a self-contained story and like, i'm lacking this like every chapter i was looking for something that has like a story arc and it was like a list of facts and then some conclusions from that that could be interesting and sometimes were not that interesting, but sometimes were interesting. And I want to talk that, about that in a little bit. There were like two ideas that I quite liked in the book. Um, that's, that's a good thing to do. Let's talk about the, the ideas you liked a lot in the book. There was um, the first idea where I like, noted down, like I, I like this, was the idea that domains in your, in your personal life, that you should not think about them as competing against each other, like your work and your family and your hobbies and your friends. These are not like competing interests that you have to balance out and then constantly struggle between like, like okay, if I take away something from family, then I can put this to work, um, but rather see these as like overlapping um, sort of like uh, um, uh, now I'm lacking the word here, but they're like um, feel like supporting each other and um, they're complementary. That's the word that I was looking for. Like they're com complementary and they're like all building you as a person and your per uh, and your character, and that they are. Yeah, you shouldn't see them as things that rather than looking at the stuff that how they take resources away and compete for resources, see how all of them build skills and personality that support, you, support each other. Like being a more fa caring family member um, can also help you in your work because you can bring aspects from this care into your work and being social with your friends can then also help you maybe with your leisure activities or stuff like that so that you rather like change the perspective on the same thing. And like that's, that's mm -hmm. something I quite liked as, a, as an input. I don't really... I didn't really get how this would fit in with the plan world, but just the idea on itself, I really liked. <laughs> I think it's something lacking from the academic point of view. Sorry, Ellen, what do you want to say? Oh, no, I was just laughing. <laughs> but one <laughs> thing I did like is that I didn't know that the leaves of corn plants, if they're attacked by butterflies or moths, they can release a chemical that attracts a parasitic wasp, which in turn will attack the butterfly or moth. That was my favorite thing that I learned from this book. <laughs> <laughs>
Did I you already that didn't know, know that? I didn't know that. <laughs> Did anybody else have a favorite fact they want to mention? I don't know if it's a fact, but I remember liking the transformation chapter. And it's talking, it talks a lot about succession um, and how, like, after disturbances, there can be um, certain pioneer species that come in first and start to change the ecosystem and other things come in in waves and and the uh, landscapes changes over time. So I knew all about that from school, but I did enjoy reading it. And um, it does have some nice parallels to like social change and that you really need kind of trailblazers to to light a spark or to to go out there first in front of everyone else. I have to I have to agree with Melissa. I think transformation was my favorite um chapter. Firstly, there was more of this kind of stuff that linked to leadership, I think in that chapter and that seems like that was where there was more personality from her coming in. I think that's what she's talked about before um and that was quite interesting. And yeah, there was this idea of like sometimes you need to set fires before there can be change and she briefly did mention like the Trump election and again, I wanted it to go a little bit further um but she said there's sometimes a need for real disturbance to break away from the status quo community composition. And I really feel like that was hinting at what that one of the great lessons from plants. Like that's the best lesson sometimes. Like the examples before are fire, volcanoes, or Chernobyl. And those in the context of societal change, like, hell yes, I am all for it. And that's what I am choosing to read between the lines, that she is suggesting that we go and burn it all down to make change. (laughs) That's what I'm taking from that chapter. So that was definitely my favorite chapter as well, I have to say. I like that chapter too. But I even felt weird about the way she phrased that. I also thought that that had the biggest (laughs) punch. But then she was like, like, she said, like, these... Like, the way she said it, like, for example, the 2016 election of a U.S. president who many Americans view as anti-woman and anti-science led to a national protest movement, including the 2017 Women's March and the March for Science. Like, I think it definitely would have been better if that had never happened and those protest movements didn't have to happen, you know? Like, I think there are, like, maybe, like, more awareness of, like racial inequities and stuff like that more than like especially these two examples and especially like those specific protests you know what i mean like i didn't appreciate yeah like i liked the idea but i didn't like her framing of it you know i also noted that at this point i was like i found it weird like i would have liked like some other examples of things that were only possible because there was sort of the the pendulum swinging away from trump things that could not have worked under obama could now like push through under Trump because everybody's so like worked up and and fighting so hard then it would have convinced me but having like two marches it's pretty much also the beginning of the Trump years didn't convince me that Trump like fueled like some good act uh, action against him and I mean she might be right about this but as you said Ellen like the, the examples didn't didn't convince me but that's where it feels edited to me because that like to me there's this really clear thing of like like sometimes things have to get really really shit to like in like invoke people to to fight and change and when you don't see visibly how terrible it is it's still terrible but it's not forcing you to fight and you know burn things down but i feel like because it's said politely you don't get that feeling and it makes it seem to 
Yeah, like Ellen, you're left feeling unsatisfied because it, it almost sounds like, oh, Trump's a good thing. But to me, that's that's not the message. The message is like things are already bad and Trump sort of was a visual visualization of how bad things could be, like were already. I mean, these things were already happening, like situations were already bad for women and many other men are like... So that was something that sort of spurred people into action. And I think that was the point, but it got lost with this sort of more gentle language that was used in this kind of soft examples, maybe. At least I want to believe that was the point. That's <laughs> that's what I want. I mean, I just want things to be burned down at this point. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Also, she doesn't say she doesn't say Donald Trump's name. She just says a U.S. president. <laughs> which I resented. Again, that, that feels like editing to me. Like, that feels like let's be careful with the way we word things as opposed to... I don't know. I want to believe that behind the scenes she's like, screw this man. He's awful. Like, I want to believe she does not like Trump. <laughs> Maybe she just wanted to be politically correct in this. They're not name-calling. And, uh, I mean... Being a scientist and being listened to also means to phrase things sometimes in a diplomatic way. So I, I can relate to that. That that is, and she's also from a minority um, culture. So I think there you also want to be careful what you say, uh, so that you don't con like offend people. Even though I mean we all know we all know what we think about him, and uh, but still there is there may be yeah. She says it in a subtle way. And this book is very, yeah, it's very strongly still linked to her career, right? This is still like, she is a professor in plant biology writing a book about lessons from plants. So teaching from, like, it's very closely intertwined with her professional identity. So I can imagine that, like, whereas I feel fairly confident saying that we should set fire to things and eat the rich on my podcast, like... It's not like that's not something that everybody <laughs> wants to have linked to their professional professional identity. That's that's fine. I also enjoyed that part where she where she wrote really about leadership and mentoring and coaching and the importance of uh, leaders and coaches to focus on the people in front of them and not about themselves. And I think that's a very large criticism about how science is working because we work for our own CV. And when you employ a PhD student or a postdoc, well, the majority of people that employ them, what counts is that the project advances. But I think you don't, it doesn't really count what is, uh, like, what, where's the person heading? So that kind of attitude that many uh, leaders in science have, because people are not... Um, and not educated necessarily in leadership and coaching skills. And I know that from my own environment, when I take that up and I want to have a discussion about it, there is none. People are not interested in discussing this. And I was really happy that she took that up. And I said, well, finally, somebody who, somebody who puts down her foot and says, this is important. Yeah, I think I think the parts where she talks about teaching are kind of the most personal. I also had a second part and it ties into what Judith was just saying. I think it builds on exactly what you were talking about. I think it was the last chapter she was talking about how uh, a mentor and leader should like know what the, the person they're mentoring, what their special skills are and what different interests they may have. And that they may be a really creative person or they may want a career path that's not the normally defined career path. And I really felt like 
that was speaking to me in terms of um, science, how, you know, a lot of graduate students kind of go in thinking that they, okay, I'm going to do this, then I'll become professor. Or at least sometimes that's what their supervisors think their students should do, where the students may have lots of other skills and ideas and different directions they could go. So I really like that she was talking about how it's the a mentor's job to to find those special things and encourage them in di- to go in different directions. Yeah, and like that's yeah, as you said, it's it's really a problem sort of in the graduate programs we have. We we make so many more like graduate PhD students than we have professorship roles. But I know at least in 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 my time as a PhD student, there was really this feeling that if you didn't tell the people in charge that you wanted to be a professor, you wouldn't be treated like seriously while you're doing your PhD like they would think that you you weren't doing the, what you were supposed to be doing and you know you're making the wrong choices and then you would you would lose opportunities basically so I think this is a really important thing that we're kind of missing in our teaching at the moment definitely agree and I could relate to that she uh, I didn't think so much about the tomatoes and the gardening plants but more about house plants so when Joram said that well you also rip out these ones when you plant them in the garden yeah you do I was more thinking about the house plants where she is uh, like saying you look at the plants and you wonder what the plant needs and you don't blame the plant for not performing well you more blame yourself for not understanding what the plant actually needed and that is a that is an interesting um um, analogy to the, the being a leader or being a mentor to a person that uh, don't try to find the mistake or the problem in the person but try to see what the person will need to thrive and I, I really like that yeah that's also like my second part that I wanted to mention exactly this this passage because it goes from I mean I misunderstood it at first I thought she meant like we should blame the plant like I was like <laughs> looking at it from the caretaker's point of view and like you did everything that you could and then the plant is still not thriving so so maybe the plant its plant is at fault and it turned the story around in my head for a little while until I understood no 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 she wants to say that like the plant we never blame the plant because the plant is not to blame so why do we blame people that we mentor when they're also not to blame similar to the plant and then i really liked i really liked the story then once i understood it um because i think we often see that in like systemic um instances where they're like oh we're giving these people everything they need and if they don't succeed then it's on them uh, because we have given everything look and then we have like some examples where it worked and so like you can see the system is working because some people succeed in it um and this is a different perspective on it this says like no you this might not be enough you might not understand all of the things that are necess- uh, necessary to succeed and then you're not providing them and therefore people are not succeeding like not not everybody is succeeding and then you have to figure out what to change so i i really like that part and um that really resonated with me because it also talks about like how success is not like this easy to follow a to b thing like you just have to need to do these like three four steps and then you succeed and if you don't succeed then it's on you because you're not taking the steps right um and yeah i think that was actually a very good lesson from from the book that like originates from plants and taking care of plants does anyone have any other favorite parts they want to mention my favorite part was that i thought the book was going to be twice as long but it ended like half of it was citations. The so. shade. <laughs> wow. Oh, she's not okay. Wrong. I think, <laughs> but I can't, I can't deny that I didn't feel the same way. I was like, oh, 
I'm happy that there's like a lot of pages that are references that I don't have to go through as thoroughly. At least a quarter of the book. Yeah. So so it's like on the spot 150 pages of content and then I don't know how many like another like 50 or 70 or so of references. Okay, so <laughs> if we run out of like really favorite parts, were there any lessons from plants that you think could have been included in here? Like a lesson you could learn from a plant that is not in this book? That's a really good question. Yeah, I like that question Thank a you, lot. Thank you, Alan. Thank you. <laughs> I would like to learn how to photosynthesize myself so I don't have to go grocery shopping. <laughs> I think your set of standards are a little bit high slash okay, insane. <laughs> the lesson, yeah. Um, I did know somebody who would only respect organisms that could fix inorganic carbon so they could photosynthesize. So that's, that's one way to judge other organisms in the world. But I'm not sure it's the best way. I think I would, I would like to take the lesson from plants, like from uh, like as a whole group, that you have to find your niche and like figure out what your niche is and then thrive in that niche. Just like how some plants do very badly when they're in direct sun, where other plants do very well in direct sun. And if you compare yourself to to the plant that is thriving in direct sun but you are hurting um then you will have a bad time and so like finding your niche and understanding that both things are valid like both circumstances make a valid life um although both lives might be completely different this is a lesson that i would like to like i mean maybe i have learned it now from plants now that i'm saying it (laughs) but it's a lesson that i think can be learned from plants that's really nice I think when it comes to, uh, I'm working on plant-microbe interactions. So for me, that is a big subject and uh, how fungi and plants adapt to each other and change their, well, especially for fungi, their physical exterior appearance to be accepted by the plant. That's kind of um, a a nice analogy to communication between people how you listen to the other person and you understand what they need and you communicate with them in that way and I think that's something that we can we can learn from and to think about that like have focus on have focus on the connection between different people we interact with instead just of having focus on ourselves when we interact with them and trying to get our message through and that's especially important when it comes to science communication. And it's a difficult aspect of science communication that if you communicate to society as a scientist, often you are not heard because you're not communicating the right way. And that is maybe a lesson we can learn from plants. How do they interact with other organisms of other from other kingdoms even uh, in a way they can make themselves understood and interact with them and even create symbiosis and how can we as scientists be better in that way um i think my lesson is like sit in the sun but wear sunscreen (laughs) (laughs) that's a very good point Like yep. those plants have mm-hmm, natural mm-hmm. sunscreens, but they, they do have that's to get true. Sun also. So <laughs> I think I think there's some very silly lessons I can think of of like 
like defects making like defects making plants beautiful like how we all prize these like weird plants now that are like mutants i think there's something in there she sort of got at that already there's definitely something there about like how shit can make you grow like plants love having bird poop piled on them that's definitely (laughs) a missed analogy and if i had written this book i would have milked the hell out of that um And then the thing I kind of want to see, which is just something that I always want to see when science is discussed, is chance. Like, I want to, like, in the natural world with plants, like, your success, and with all organisms, your success in many chances depends on on chance. So, like, a bird might pick up a seed and, like, poo it out in completely the wrong spot, and then you're done from, from the start. And especially when it's a book that sort of comes towards, like, people who might be graduate students i always want to see like luck and chance come into the argument because i think that's something that we don't talk about enough um in that field so yeah i would have liked to see that come in somewhere as well but yeah defects shit and chance (laughs) (laughs) that's actually something i like from peter volume's book that we write like the hidden life of trees because there's one part where he talks about this like this enormous amount of seeds that every tree puts out every season and how small the chance is that they actually find the right spot to grow and not only to germinate, but also to thrive in the long run. And mm-hmm. yeah, that, that, there, this story was told and uh, in lessons from plants that like that could have fit in there as well. Like that, even if you do all the things right, um, you still might be out of luck. So <laughs> it's a little it's bit maybe depressing. Maybe not as positive enough. I think there could be like a positive spin. Yeah, no, I like, think even if you think about just the chances of like being born, I guess, as a person, like the fact that we're all alive, living <laughs> lives, I mean, oh, you've won the lottery oh, already now, right? So like a gratitude, yeah, right? Yeah. Gratitude towards even the, the miracle of like that we are humans that came into the world. Yeah. There's probably also something there about like a lot of plants kind of go into stasis they sort of have these like quiescent states where they just sort of like hunker down and like take time out and pause and like don't do anything so there could be something in there as well about like you know sometimes it's okay to just like lock yourself in your room and and watch netflix and pretend you're a seed and like save the germinating for a little bit later i'm sure i'm sure that can work it's like we're stretching a little bit the metaphors here but i think i think we can get that in there as well yeah lessons from plants part two (laughs) (laughs) i also like the part about timing when it came to the chapter of the three sisters uh that was actually something that i was intrigued about in general because that's nothing that i had ever heard about not living in a place where you grow corn but that's about growing corn and beans and squash together where the corn would be a uh like a, a physical holder for the beans to climb up on and the beans that are having nitrogen fixing bacteria providing nitrogen to the soil and the squash is covering the soil and keeping it moist and is also having the little yeah the rough surface so that it actually um, holds off any kind of herbi- uh, herbivores mm-hmm. or any like things that want to eat and chew on the on the two others and that was a really nice concept but she also mentioned she mentioned the above ground and the below ground parts which i like that also the roots um, have this kind of interaction with uh, the uh, the corn growing very surface like and the bean growing deep and the um 
squash finding its way in between and making adventitious roots as it grows and spreads out. But the one important point there is if they want to grow this way together, the corn needs to germinate first and then the bean and then last the the squash. Otherwise, they are covering each other and the whole thing doesn't work out. So timing was very interesting in that aspect that when we want to collaborate, there may be uh, a person who is who is there first and who needs to do something so that the others can um, take over afterwards or contributed and the timing aspect was also maybe that was more related to the pioneer plants and the 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 next generations coming up that some people have the capacity to drive that change as melissa also said they come with an idea but they are not the person that will lead others into a stable like um, execution of the ideas but they will bring the change and that was also a lot about like timing that there may be others that need to come into the picture later on and uh, I like that analogy of the book I like this the concept of the three sisters I found that very interesting how you could grow them in such a like physical connection to each other and um, the analogy that was drawn from that yeah I think so I think that's one of the instances where like Ellen and Yoram and I might be suffering from having already read a lot of plant book club books because we read um, Robin Wall Kimmerer's book Braiding Sweetgrass and that that chapter is quite heavily referencing that so like I think for for me at least and I'm sure maybe for you guys as well that did feel a little bit like well I've read this already like I've I've read all of this I've read it in Robin Wall Kimmerer's words and she's amazing so why am I having to read this again and that was a little bit like yeah I've read the Braiding Sweetgrass book as well and that one is what made me think this one was missing the personal touch because the Robin Wall Kimmerer book is beautifully written, like poetically written and really shares a lot about her life and her family and, and goes into that. And so, yeah, reading the um, chapter about the three sisters, I just kept thinking, oh, I should go back and read the, the Braiding Sweetgrass chapter. <laughs> yeah, and Braiding Sweetgrass, I really had the urge afterwards to try to grow the three sisters myself. I mean, I never did because I'm a lazy gardener. Like, I have, I have no joy in gardening. <laughs> but it really made me inspired to try this out. And um, I don't know if it's because I've read the story already that I didn't have the urge this time. Um, but yeah. Uh, or maybe it's because it's like starting to become like fall here and it's not a good time to start growing corn now. I don't know what it was, but um, I didn't have the same urge this time. Also, I wanted to add that like this is something they teach in American schools. Like this is one of the one oh. things I remember from school is the three sisters. Like they, every Thanksgiving, it's one of the lessons. So I was like, <laughs> yes. Oh, okay. <laughs> I know this. So you've heard this yeah. more than once, many more, yes. much more often than well, once. That's the benefit of our podcast, having a group of people from different places, at least. <laughs> yeah. New and exciting for us. Yeah. I can but it's always cool to see. Uh, so shall we wrap up then and discuss our ratings, how we think the book was? So Yoram, do you want to go first? Uh, yeah, I'm, I'm going to... I don't know. I feel I feel bad for saying a two out of five um, beautiful illustrations, but it is what it is for me. Like I I did not enjoy too much of it. Like there were some good ideas that I will take from it, but overall I would not recommend most people to read the book. Uh, Melissa, I would give it three out of five. I enjoyed parts. I found it just a little bit. Um, like lacking in personal touch. And I was, um, I, I took away some good things from the book, but again, I was, um, 
not sure who I would recommend it to. So three out of five for me. I would give it one corn leaf summoning a parasitic wasp out of five. I'm sorry. I did not like it. (laughs) (laughs) I give it uh, three resources to be mindful about out of five <laughs> because I I like that reminder I and I like the reminder that we need to be better in coaching and mentoring our students uh, and I think that was a report important reminder even though I found the biology a bit uh, repetitive redundant and uh, dry I read the book all the book today so uh, but it's okay <laughs> I got it down. It was it went through. It. I needed to take a few naps in between when I fell asleep, <laughs> but I, I think it had an important message in it. It was a bit hidden. Yeah, I think I'm going to give it two birds pooping on a fancy leaf out of five. I I thought there were some good like ideas in there, but I did feel that it sort of lacked in the coming out. And I think a lot of the things I was sort of intuiting from it, but I, I wanted to go the next step. So yeah. Alrighty, guys, what are we reading next? I think we could read uh, Murder Most Florid next by Dr. Mark Spencer. From what I've read, and I've only read like a little blurb of it, it's like a story um, about a forensic botanist uh, who helps the police solving murder cases. Um, So that could be interesting. Oh, yeah. Okay, so I think that's it for us today. Let's go through where you can meet up with us all. Ellen, where can we find you? You can find me on my Twitter at Ellen... Yellowian Earhart, A-I-R-H-A-R-T. And you can also find my podcast, Plant Crimes, on anywhere you get podcasts. And email me at plantcrimes at gmail.com. I love to hear from people. Melissa, where can we find you? You can find me and Judith uh, at Flora L Design. So we have Instagram, flora.l.design. And our website is www.flora-l.com. Anything to add, Judith? And we have a Flora and Friends podcast. So if you go to our website, you will find that. You find that on all the podcast channels. And we're talking about, or we're talking about plants and with people who are in some way uh, connected in their lives to plants, maybe through their profession or passion or other ways. It's sometimes in Swedish and most often in English. Amazing. And Joram, where can we find Plants and Pipettes? Uh, <laughs> you can talk to <laughs> Tegan and me um, at Plants and Pipettes. That's on plantsandpipettes.com. We also have like a Twitter at Plants and Pipettes, Instagram, and that's at Plants and Pipettes. Uh, and there, if you want to ha- learn more about like molecular plant science, you can go there. It's like a website with articles and a podcast show. Um, and we are happy to t- tell you stuff about plants, I think. <laughs> Anything to add, Tegan? <laughs> I don't. Um, I just <laughs> want to say thank you, everyone, for listening to us this week. Um, be sure to read along with us, Murder Most Florid, if you want to form your own opinions about the book before you hear ours. Um, until next time, goodbye. Bye. Bye-bye. Bye. Bye. The opening and closing music is from the album Green Ideas from Pine Vogue. You can find the music on Bandcamp where it is published under a Creative Commons license 3.0.